Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. While you're doing that, let me just say about life groups. I mentioned life groups earlier. 2023, I'm praying, is going to be the year of life groups around here. And we are already seeing God do a great work as it relates to our groups who gather on Sunday mornings. And if you're looking for a group, uh, here's where, where you could find one. We're starting two new groups in January, on January the 8th. Uh, one in each service, and they're going to be a different kind of group. And so if you're looking for a group, here's how you can sign up. Go to yourgracelife.com slash pit crew, because it's going to be a pit crew style of your Grace Life person. It's conversational sort of style. And you can sign up for whichever hour you may want to be a part of that. So yourgracelife.com slash pit crew, and let's all be a part of a group, right? I think life groups ought to be used of the Lord to be the antidote to loneliness. The real pandemic in our world today, I think, is loneliness. And Christ-centered relationships, man, that can do a great work in our heart and our lives. So I want to encourage you to be a part of life groups in 2023. All right, Matthew chapter 1. We started a new sermon series last Sunday in the book of Matthew that we're calling Different. Different. And last week we started to look at how different the family is that Jesus came into the world through broken people and selfish people and immoral people, people that were victims of really bad things happening to them. He came through people who were perpetrators of doing very bad things to other people. We looked at the fact that while Jesus is Jewish, his family was ethnically diverse with not only Jew but Gentile in his genealogy. And specifically last Sunday, we zoomed in on Three women who were named, their names were given to us in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And we talked last week about Tamar, the forgotten. And we talked about Rahab, the shameful. And we talked about Ruth, the outsider. And today, as we finish out the first chapter of Matthew, we're going to continue to see how Jesus' family is so different. But today, it's different in this sense. His family not only has a earthly pedigree, but Jesus also has a heavenly pedigree. And I want to start back at verse 14 of Matthew chapter 1, and I want to point out something there to you in the list of all those crazy names in the genealogy. We're going to jump in on the tail end of that genealogy, and I want to show you something that we really didn't draw a lot of attention to last week. And if you're here today, and like Mary in the Christmas story, you're maybe great with child today, and you still haven't decided on a baby name Today's your day. Here we go. Chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 14. Azor fathered Zadok. Now, your kid's destined to be a linebacker if his name's Zadok. I'm just saying. All right. Azor fathered a son named Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary who gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. I don't know if you saw that there at the end, but Matthew threw a little curveball there in verse 16. The first 16 verses of that chapter, Matthew's saying, and this guy fathered this guy, and then this guy fathered this guy, and this guy fathered this guy. But when you get to verse 16, it says, Joseph, the husband of Mary. It doesn't say he fathered anybody. It says he's the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. 
Here's what Matthew's doing. Matthew's dropping us a little clue right there that Jesus comes from a very different kind of family. Yes, Joseph is married to the biological mother of Jesus, but Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. It's a subtle clue in verse 16, but it's a front and center fact in verse 18. Look at verse 18. The birth of Jesus came about this way, Matthew says. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. Now look, we don't know a great deal about Joseph, but we know that in this situation he was like most every other man would be. He's about to marry this girl. They were waiting for their wedding night, but now she is expecting a child. And so he is trying to figure out, how do I get out of this relationship? But here's the thing about Joseph. He seems to be a good man. He seems to be a kind man. In fact, the Bible just said of Joseph that he is a righteous man. He wanted to do the right things. And he wanted to do the right things the right way. And here he is in this situation, and yet he has Mary's best interest at heart. Even though it could cost him personally a tremendous amount of embarrassment, he's looking for what is the best way that I can get out of this, minimizing as best as possible any hurt or harm or shame or embarrassment that could come to Mary. And I think here we get sort of an idea, don't we? of why God chose this man to be the foster dad to Jesus. I think just this says a lot about his character. Verse 20 says this, But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. You know why these angels show up and say, don't be afraid? Because people were afraid, right? And Joseph is afraid. He's probably afraid of this angel that he's seeing there, but he's afraid. He's got fear in the middle of this situation. The angel says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This is Isaiah Verse 23, see the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. And this morning, this is the question I want to go after today. Why is it so important? that Jesus would be born in such a different way. Is that really important? What is the significance of that? Why was it necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin? Why was it necessary for Jesus not to have an earthly biological father? I'll tell you this, the virgin birth is not just to sprinkle a little magic on the Christmas season, right? And go, oh, wow, that was cool. That's amazing how that happened. Isn't Christmas special? No, it's bigger than that. It's more important than that. Here it is. Listen, 
part of it is this. If Jesus hadn't been born of a virgin, then we could not have forgiveness of sin. We could not have salvation. We would have no hope beyond this life or beyond the grave. We would not have any relationship or reconciliation with God. Jesus came into this world in a very different way than we ever could have imagined so that he could save us from our sin. To reconcile, think of this, a perfect God to sinful humanity would require somebody that could represent both parties. It would require somebody that could represent both God and man. And so God became a man so that Jesus, the God-man, could reconcile sinners to God. He is God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, but in the womb of a young human being. He is 100% God and 100% man. Even more than that, why did Jesus have to be born this way, in such a different way? Why is it so important that he didn't have an earthly biological father? Well, I answered this question several months ago when we were in our worldview series, but I thought you probably needed to be reminded of it today. So if it sounds a little familiar to some of you, that's a great encouragement to me that it might sound familiar to you after all this time. But back then we said this, when kingdoms collide, you're identified by whoever your king is. Think of it this way. We don't have a king in the United States of America, we have a president, we have a Congress. Today, if they came together and declared war on another nation, even though we didn't declare war, but those who were ahead over us declared war, in that moment, we're now enemies with those upon whom war has been declared. Now think of this, long before there were heads of government, heads of state, long before there were federal heads, long before there were emperors or kings or presidents over nations, the entire human race was under the headship of one person. You might say this person was the global king over the entire world. And, and he is unique in this sense. He wasn't only the king of the earth, but he would become the biological father to all of us who inhabit this planet. His name's Adam, and he's the first man. And God positioned him to be the head over all of humanity, to be the representative of the entire human race. It was all on him. Meaning now, just like if our government today took an action, then, hey, then we're taking that action right along with them, right? So Adam, whatever he does, gets imputed to us, or it gets passed down to us. If Adam stands right, we stand right. If Adam falls, then we all fall. God created Adam in chapter 2 here in Genesis. In chapter 2, he makes a covenant with Adam. This is the first covenant, by the way, that God makes with a human being. God's going to make a number of covenants throughout his word, but let me explain what a covenant is. It's not a contract, all right? So let me first explain what a contract is. A contract is where you have two or more people coming together in a mutually advantageous sort of way. It's all built on this party has some interest in it. This party has some, some interest in it. They have something to gain. They have something to gain. And so they come together and make a contract, right? For example, I want to buy a house, and I don't have that kind of money, so I go to the bank because they have that kind of money. 
And so they got something that, that I want. And I have something they want. They want me to pay some interest on that for all of those years. And so together we come into this contract. That's what contracts are. They're about self-interest. But covenants are not about self-interest. Covenants are about relationship. A relationship. See, contracts are about this party and that party. Contracts are about you and me. But covenants are about we. Covenants are about us. See, a prenup is a contract. A prenup says, this is my stuff, don't touch it. This is your stuff, I'm not going to touch it. Marriage is not a contract, marriage is a covenant. Marriage says, it's not you and me, now it's us and we. God does not enter into contracts with people. Do you know why God doesn't enter into contracts with people? Because people have nothing to benefit God. God stands to gain nothing from us. God is in need of nothing. So God doesn't enter into contracts with people. He enters into covenants with people. Out of his kindness, out of his mercy, out of his grace, out of his compassion, he says, I want a relationship. I want you to have a relationship with me. I want you to know that joy. I want you to know what it's like to walk with your creator, to know me, to have a personal relationship with me. So God forms covenants with people. I'm in a covenant with God right now. And and I remind myself of that covenant that I'm in with God every time we have the Lord's Supper. And I take that little piece of bread and that little cup of juice, and I'm reminding myself that I am in a covenant now that God has made with me through the broken body and the shedding of the blood of his son, Jesus. So in Genesis 2, God makes a covenant with the first man, Adam, who's really the king of the earth. He's head over all of that. And here's the king of heaven, right? Here's the king of heaven and the king of earth, and the king of heaven's making this covenant, good, gracious, kind, compassionate covenant with Adam. Here's what he says to him, Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. And guys, we can't even fathom that statement, how amazing this place was, right? God takes the man and he puts him right in the middle of the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's the covenantal agreement between God and Adam. God says, I've made all this stuff, Adam, and I'm giving it to you. It's all yours, and I want you to enjoy it. I'm only asking you for one thing. There's just one tree in all of creation. Don't eat off that tree. If you don't eat off that tree, life And life to the full is yours. But you eat off that tree, and death is going to come. Now, we don't know exactly how long that covenant stood, but we know that it no longer stands. We know that the tragic day came, that Adam broke that covenant between him and God. And King Adam's choice was bigger than, hey, I'm hungry, what do I want to eat? It it was a bigger decision than figuring out what to snack on, way bigger than that. He was making a decision, an intentional decision. Am I going to keep this kind, gracious covenant God has made with me, or am I going to break it? Am I going to walk away from God and his covenant toward me? As the head 
of all of creation and all of creation's future inhabitants, that's us, Adam has a choice to make. Either stand with his creator in this good covenant or sever the kingdom of the earth from the kingdom of heaven and from her God. And Adam made his choice. He broke the covenant with God and he severed his earthly kingdom and along with it all of us who would be inhabitants of it one day cut us off from God himself. Satan had lured Adam into committing an act of war against God and the gracious bond that had existed between heaven and earth, between the king of heaven and the king of earth, that bond was broken, shattered. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 tells us of that day. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the garden walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. For the first time now, shame has come into the world. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? By the way, if the Lord asks you a question, I promise you he already knows the answer. He just likes to engage us with questions because I think that makes us squirm <laughs> sometimes, maybe a little more. So the Lord said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man, being real manly in this moment, said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Now we got accusations. That's new in the world. We have suspicion. We have broken trust. Human relationships, the most fundamental thing, the very thing that God said, that's very good. Now those are beginning to spiral out of control. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. Then God turns to the serpent and he said, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. That's fatal, right? And you shall bruise his heel. That's annoying, but not fatal. Now, all this explains what's wrong with the world today. It's called sin, it, it all started with Adam and his act of war against God and the breaking of that covenant. King Adam's one act has drove all of creation and all of us with it into enmity with God. Eve ate the fruit first, yes. But the responsibility was on Adam. He was head over her, head over the garden, head over all creation. The responsibility was on him. Creation is broken because our original king and our biological father chose to break away from God and from that covenant and to rule this kingdom without God, to rule the earth without God. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says, Therefore, 
Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. See, Adam was the first. He was the first to be created. He's the first man. He's the first to have a job. He's the first to have a wife. He's the first to walk with God. And he's also the first to sin against God. But he's also the first in this way. Adam's the first to hear the gospel. He's the first to hear the hope of good news in the midst of all the brokenness. In the midst of all the spiritual bombs that are exploding in Genesis chapter 3, God speaks a word of hope. And Adam's there to hear that. Genesis 3.15 is where it is. It's called the Proto-Evangelion. Proto, where we get our word prototype, meaning first. Evangelion, good news, evangelism, right? Gospel. This is the first gospel. This is the first proclamation of the gospel of good news. God is cursing the serpent. And in the middle of that, he mysteriously says, there's good coming. Watch this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. That's important. You might want to circle that word, her offspring. Adam is the head of the earth. And the way God designed it is his headship would be passed to his sons. That headship would be passed to their sons. That would be passed to their sons and so on. But God is saying something here not about the offspring of Adam. God is saying something here about the offspring of Eve. He says her offspring. In this moment, this is big. You're going, what does this have to do with Christmas? Hang on, because we're going straight to the manger, man. God shifts the attention here away from the paternal line onto the maternal line. God goes on to say to the servant that this one who will be born from an earthly mother, but with no mention of an earthly father, this one is going to crush your head. That's what he says to the serpent. The promise is that one is going to come one day from the woman who's going to deal with this serpent. And this one will not be one of a human father. He will be the offspring of a woman. And therefore, because he would not be from an earthly father, he would not be under the curse of Adam. He's not going to be under the headship of Adam. This would mean that he would not be born under the curse like the rest of us have been born under the curse. But how in the world could that happen? How could somebody come into the world to rescue the world and crush the head of that serpent who comes from an earthly mom but no earthly father? How could that happen? Well, just ask Joseph in Matthew chapter 2. Or ask Isaiah 700 years earlier when he said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. See, the virgin birth here at Christmas time, y'all, this is not Christmas magic. So that somebody wrote nice, warm songs one day. This is huge. It's necessary. Without the virgin birth, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no salvation. There is no Christmas. There's no hope for me and for you. It was necessary. Only one not born under the curse could save me and you from the curse. Only one not under the curse could do that. If Jesus came through the headship of a father, then he would be represented by Adam, but Jesus had no earthly biological father. He's the only human that's ever lived outside the headship of Adam. He's not 
in Adam. He was born free from sin's curse so that he could break sin's curse for me and you. He was born free of sin's curse so he could save us from our sin. He came to set us free. He came into our world to be the new Adam for us, the better Adam for us. He came to provide me and you with new representation before God because Adam fumbled that. But Jesus came to give us new representation before God. Watch this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. New Testament, Paul says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Listen, this is what we're celebrating at Christmas. A new and a different king has come to the earth. And he has come like the dawning of a new day. He is the one that all of heaven praises and adores. And yet this king of heaven left heaven and came to this earth not looking like a king. Not robed in royal robes. Not with a triumphant procession. Simply robed in the body of a little baby. We had a five-day-old precious baby here last Sunday. And once upon a time, Jesus looked like that. The king of heaven robed himself in flesh and became a man. And here's why that's good news. It's good news because we could not reach to God. So God has reached down to us. Jesus put on flesh. He became one of us to save us. He humbled himself to ransom me and you from the curse of sin. Listen, I'm telling you today, there is no gospel without the incarnation of Jesus. There's no forgiveness of sin if Jesus had not come in flesh, born of a virgin. There's no gospel if he's not fully God and fully man. Pastor Mike's going to lead us today. And I want to encourage you, lock in mentally on the words that we're singing. And then pay attention to your heart as God moves and speaks and stirs. Listen to this first verse, how grateful we should be today for the virgin birth of Jesus. That he came not under the headship of Adam, but he came from heaven. Born to a virgin, not under the curse of sin, so that we could be saved from our sin. Just sit right there and sing with us, with your heart, mind, soul, strength. Wondrous mystery. In the dawning of the King, He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing and our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended. Took on flesh to ransom us. Today, if Jesus had not been born of a virgin, but there would be no good news today if he lived his life in sin. Like all of us have sinned, but he didn't sin. Adam had it all. He never suffered 
in that garden. And yet he sinned and he failed us. Jesus had nothing, not even a pillow on which to lay his head, and yet he never failed us. He never sinned. His life was filled with hardship, with temptations and trials, and yet he remained without sin. He is the spotless Lamb of God. No fault, no failure is found in him. Jesus is the better Adam, way better than Adam. Adam brought the curse. Jesus broke the curse. Adam said to God, hey, don't don't blame me, blame my bride. But Jesus said, don't blame my bride, put the blame on me. In the garden, Adam said, not your will, but my will be done. But in another garden, Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus lived his perfect sinless life. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He scored a hundred on the test before God. He's the only person that could do that because he's not from Adam. He's from God. No other man could have met all the requirements of the law, but he did. And by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone today, our sins can be forgiven and we can be reconciled to God. Come on, let's thank him for that today. Come behold the wondrous mystery He the perfect Son of Man In His living, in His suffering Never trace nor stain of sin See the true and better Adam Come to save the heaven man Christ the great and sure fulfillment good news that Jesus came to this world, born of a virgin, put on flesh. It's good news that he lived a perfect and a sinless life. But there is no good news for us today without the shedding of blood. Because the Bible says there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. To break the curse of sin and to restore us in fellowship with God. Jesus had to pay the price for our sin. And the Bible's clear that the price of sin is death. Jesus hung on a cross to pay that price for us. God had pointed Adam away from a tree, but he pointed his one and only son to a tree. And there Jesus suffered and died in your place and in my place that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to God. On the cross, Jesus, the spotless, perfect, sinless Lamb of God became our substitute, our sacrifice. And through that Lamb, a new covenant, a new covenant from God came to us. Not a covenant of works. Not a covenant that says you do this and you do this, but a covenant of grace that says it is done. Jesus declared it from the cross when he said, it is finished. It was kind of concealed back there in Genesis 3.15, but it's totally revealed in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. The plan of God has unfolded through all these pages of scripture to bring us to this Jesus, the son of God, 
hanging, suffering, dying on that cross, body being broken, blood being shed, that you and I could be saved from our sin. Let's sing on that. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. News. Jesus, born of a virgin, in the flesh. Good news. He lived a perfect, sinless life. Good news. He died on a cross that through the shedding of his blood, our sins might be forgiven. But if he's still dead, then we have no good news. If the gospel message ends with Jesus in the tomb, then we have no gospel. We have no good news at all. If Jesus is still in a tomb, then you and I are still in our sin. If he's still in that grave, then we're still under the curse of sin. It's still ruling and reigning over us, has not been broken if Jesus is still dead because a dead Savior cannot save. A dead king has no kingdom. The gospel is only good news for us if Jesus was born of a virgin in the flesh, lived a perfect sinless life, died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and conquered death in the grave and rose again on the third day. And I'm telling you, he did all that. Merry Christmas. Come on, let's sing. Come behold the wondrous mystery Slain by death, the God of life But no grave could restrain him Praise the Lord, he is alive What a foretaste of deliverance How unwavering our hope Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Have you heard anything I said today? Then let's stand. Pastor Mike, let's take it from the top. And I want to encourage you to squeeze every drop of worship and glory and honor out of every syllable of every word of this song. We don't have gold, frankincense, and myrrh to lay at his feet on this Sunday before Christmas, but we have our hearts, and we have our minds, and we have our lips. And I would be okay not to walk out of here with any of mine left. I'd just as soon leave it in the room at his feet today because he's worthy. So I'm asking you, even if you're the worst singer you have ever heard, we are going to celebrate what Christmas really means now. From the bottom of our feet to the tips of our fingers with every bit of oxygen that he's 
entrusted us with today. Amen.